Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. On this Friday, we take a peek behind the mask to find out what makes for a great mascot and what makes for a bad one. And on this Black Friday, we learn why human beings may be hardwired to love a good bargain and a good bargain hunt. A former advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper explains why he thinks the new Conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, has got it wrong on drug policy and fighting the opioid crisis. But first, the Prime Minister took centre stage at the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa today, wrapping up six weeks of testimony. The big question the big question was, why did the federal government see the blockades and protests as a threat to national security? And did it meet the threshold needed to invoke legislation meant to be a last resort? We find out how the Prime Minister did and whether he answered some of those crucial questions. Speaking of good viewing, I don't know if you had a chance to tune in today at all to the Prime Minister um, testifying today at the public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. It is not often, don't forget, it's not often anywhere that you see the leader of a country spend several hours being questioned and then cross-examined about a matter of critical importance that... um, that is really a key to his reputation in many ways. Now, this was mandated the moment they invoked the Emergencies Act. We knew this inquiry would happen, and we knew the Prime Minister would testify, more or less. Uh, but he did so today. Uh, he really took us back in time, explained the rationale be- behind why he thought it was the right idea, why he thought the threshold uh, had been met for this to be, to be considered a, uh, a threat to national security, the ongoing blockades and convoys and occupations and so on. Um, he spoke a bit about the anger that he had faced on the 2021 federal election campaign over COVID-19 mandates, and then about how there was a bit of disconnect between what he and his advisors thought would happen if this convoy came to town and what Ottawa police were telling him. We certainly saw during the uh, first weekend uh, that the expectations that the police had said that they would simply go home, the uh, the ability to keep it under control um, was um, was not exactly there. Yeah, that's a subtle way of taking a bit of a knock at the Ottawa police. Um, he also defended his government's decision to invoke the act. He painted a picture of a country teetering on the edge of violence during the convoy protests and spoke about people in general losing faith in the ability of the powers that be to handle the situation. People's faith in our country's institutions able to do the basic things around keeping them safe gets eroded. Uh, And that is something that one has to take very seriously, that I took very, very seriously. On the matter of actually invoking the Emergencies Act, he said he uh, took solace or at least took confidence in the fact that this country's highest ranked civil servant had uh, given it the okay and said that in retrospect, he felt absolutely serene and confident that it was the right thing to do. I'm not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it, but it did do it. And that colors the conversations we're having now with the fact that these could be very different conversations. And I am absolutely serene and confident that I made the right choice. So lots to digest there. Uh, that was just sort of the a bit of what he had to say. Really, those were questions from commission counsel. So that's pretty much the prime minister laying out his case. So did he make a convincing argument that this, this was indeed an appropriate response to a threat, an actual threat to national security? Did he fill in 
some of the blanks around how he reached that decision. Joining me now with more on this is Lydia Milgen. She's a political science professor at the University of Windsor, one of the places, of course, that uh, that saw a blockade. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It is always, I find, not jarring, but it's always impressive to see a leader be put in that situation where they not only face sort of get a chance to tell their story, but they get challenged as well on it. What did you make of, of some of the responses he gave today around, really around the reasoning and the idea that this was indeed a threat to national security? Yeah, he didn't um, dwell too much on the threat to national security. I think what he was really focused on is the fact that he, he had lost confidence, frank, quite frankly, in um, various police services to have a plan to find an end to this. I mean, he, he really painted a picture about how he was being pressured by um, constituents, by um, fellow MPs. And I think he was, he also sort of revealed that he was um, impacted by the 2021 election and the protesters mm-hmm. there. He didn't sort of hint that this was a, a continuation of the anger and the vitriol that he experienced on the campaign trail. Um, so, you know, his, his discussion really centered on the fact that when, you know, when he pressed police services to show a plan, he felt that they didn't have a plan. And he even said, you know, you can look at their plan and say that there's nothing there. And, and that became a point of contention. Yeah, he certainly didn't hold back when it came to criticizing the police response to this. I just wonder when you look at it all, and this has been, I think, since the beginning of this inquiry, the thing that has stood out is a failure. This was not necessarily a threat to national security as much as the security's inability to deal with a threat. And that's an odd situation when one thinks about the Emergencies Act. It is. I mean, it's it's as if they, they sat on their hands for several weeks. And then because of that, they create, they, the, the crisis became worse. I mean, obviously, you know, regardless if it was the province or the city of Ottawa or the RCMP, the fact remains that they didn't do what was necessary to keep it under control. It almost was as if they gave the, the protesters the keys to the city and then were surprised when they wouldn't leave. Um, and so to say that that was caused the emergency to happen um, it makes you wonder if it's something that they wanted to happen all along just so that they could invoke the Emergency Act. And in fact, he kind of hinted to that. He said that they had dusted it off at the start of the pandemic and That's thought, right. well, no, we can't use it for the pandemic. But then it was in the back of their mind at the beginning, even at the like day two of the protest, they sort of uh, you know thought about whether or not they could use it. And, and Lametti had even said that earlier in the week that, you know, it was just something that they were going to consider um, if they had to. And so I think that was a little bit troubling um, in in the testimony because it kind of reveals that I think so, I think it was Paul Wells said it well in in, um, in an article today saying that you know it's almost like Chekhov's gun you know you introduced it the first act and if you don't use it by the second you've missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. The Justice Minister, David Lametti, uh, testified earlier in the week. Uh, in terms of how he handled the cross-examination, I mean, honestly, I think in terms of um, communicate, how well he communicated up there today, he did a pretty good job. Now, whether he communicated enough to give people confidence in the decisions that were made back in February, I guess that'll be up to Justice Rouleau to decide. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's about that communication. I agree. I think he did a good job today. I think it was actually one of his better, um, you know, if, if I could put it so crassly, one of his better performances. Um, he didn't seem quite as scripted as he does, you know, when he's answering questions to the House of Commons. And maybe it was just so refreshing that he was actually answering questions. <laughs> and we haven't really seen yeah. that a lot from political leaders. And so I think that that was, was part of it. Um, you know, but, you know, for me, the, the big question is, you know, did they have a plan? He says that the, the police didn't have a plan or you didn't have comfort in it. But I always, you know, the fact that I recall Windsor being cleared the weekend before Ottawa and Windsor was able to be cleared without the invocation of the Emergency Act is is the thing that I find most jarring about this. Throughout the testimony, different ministers, especially Christian Freeland, has said that this was a threat to our economy and they talked about the border crossing as being one of the reasons for doing it. But we didn't need the Emergencies Act to break up the, the protest at the border. They were able to do it with uh, provincial tools and existing tools. So um, that question has never really been answered very clearly, except for, for the Prime Minister today saying that we were afraid there were going to be other um, protests that would continue to pop up here and there. Um, and so this was a way to end it once and for all. Yeah, you were right there on the front front of it. And clearly, you know, the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge was the one that, that got everyone really, uh, to, 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 to use a scientific term, freaked out um, on both <laughs> sides of the border, whether it be the Americans, whether it be the governor of Michigan, uh, Rob Ford himself. I mean, it felt like that one really spurred action. And it was cleared up pretty quickly. Um, you're right. It, it's an interesting. It's an interesting that they so they don't talk about that much. Although it was mentioned today, and Trudeau said again, he's talked about it spreading to other places. But there was lots of talk about St. Catharines. I think that other border crossing being blocked, and it wasn't. Um, so it's an interesting. It'll be interesting to see what Justice Rouleau makes of that. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see how, whether or not he, he buys that story. I mean, he he also sort of was questioning some of the witnesses uh, throughout the week, sort of trying to get a real real sense of what their rationale was and why they had to use this option as opposed to other tools. Um, you know, it, it, and again, Windsor is very similar to that of Ottawa. I remember even trying to get to my office um, during the height of it, and, and the police weren't doing anything except keeping the rest of us away from the bridge. It wasn't like they were making an effort, it seemed to me, to be clearing the you know, clearing the way for traffic to move smoothly. And, and so, you know, I think that's the bigger question is like, what was the role of the police during all of this? And, um, you know, obviously there were mistakes made. And, and for me, it's like, you know, there's always going to be protests. And I worry whenever we erode civil liberties. And so, I, you know, I think that the threshold in the act um, is something that governments have to be really careful about because it can be a slippery slope. It'll, you know, if, if you invoke it once, it makes it that much easier to invoke it uh, um, when there's another protest and you don't like the message of the protesters. And so I think that, you know, the, the questioning from the Civil Liberties Union Association um, was very pointed to all the, the different um, witnesses to really get to that question about, you know, how are we going to protect Canadians' rights to um, assembly in the future? I was really interested about what the convoy lawyer would do. And here's why. You have the Prime Minister of Canada sitting in front of you for 10 minutes. You can ask him anything you want that relates to what the inquiry is about. And instead, the lawyer got up there and sort of read emails from people who supported the convoy and then asked him a bunch of sort of open-ended, fairly disrespectful, nasty questions. And you think, why would you bother? Why would you bother with that? Why not ask some pertinent stuff about why they made, you know, why they made the decisions they made? 
I agree. I mean, I think it was a missed opportunity and you sort of have, you know, and, and I've heard others remark about how the convoy lawyers started off really well at the beginning of the inquiry, but then they, they, they kind of, as one person said, they kind of jumped the shark on this, you know, um, you know, storming out and having these antics and it just doesn't look good on them. And I think, especially if that's the last thing that the commissioner sees, it, it doesn't give a lot of credibility to that, to their point of view. And so I think it's unfortunate for their position, but you know, I guess everyone's human and um, um, strategies uh, are, are what make or break um, these types of things. And I don't think that they had the best strategy going forward, perhaps that they, they were surprised by some of the testimony that they had heard. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I just when I looked at it, I thought there's probably a story to be told from the protester point of or from the convoy point of view. Uh, and it can be told through the way that they question these witnesses. And instead, it just turned into a bit of a farce. And that was unfortunate, I thought that that took away from it. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, there, throughout this whole thing, I mean, there's always these, you almost feel like you're being, you're being played, right? There's always slights of hands. It's like, look over here, no, look over there. And, and, and it was very easy to lose sight of what is, what is the main point of the inquiry. The inquiry isn't to relitigate the convoy. It isn't to tell us about how awful it was for people on the ground on either side. It's to say whether or not um, there was a national security risk and whether or not the um, threshold for invoking the the Emergency Act was met. For me, that was the most important question. And the rest is just kind of this sleight of hand where people are talking about, you know, yes, it was hard to, to live through it and people were traumatized by it. But just because you're traumatized by something doesn't mean that that is the threshold by which we would invoke this extraordinary suspension of our civil liberties. Yeah, no, no, precisely. And I guess, I mean, in a nutshell, I think there was a way, they did manage to stick to the, to what this was really about for most of it, but with something, with so many lawyers and, and, and the, the, just the politics of it all, I guess it was inevitable that it was going to get sidetracked. It was interesting to see behind the curtain, though, the, the text messages between different levels of government, between, you know, the Solicitor General of Ontario uh, and so forth. I mean, there were some really interesting things going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of salacious stuff, and there's a lot of uh, impertinent and imprudent comments. I mean, I think it, I was a bit shocked about hearing about the, the, the you know, ministers joking about using um, tanks to stop this and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and, and just um, a little bit of colorful language between the Ontario solicitor, uh, a solicitor general compared to... Um, Speaking to Mendicino, the public safety minister, um, right. obviously, um, people people's emotions were running hot. They certainly were. In a nutshell, do you think we heard what we needed to hear over the past six weeks? Um, I think we heard quite a bit. I don't know if we got everything, and I don't think we'd ever get everything. We're certainly not going to be privy to all cabinet confidences, and I think people are frustrated that you know the government would uh, invoke um, client, you know, cabinet solid cabinet fault confidentiality and client solicitor confidentiality. I think that's the key thing. You know, Lametti was limited. Uh, to what he could say simply because he is the legal counsel for the cabinet. But I think those are important questions to ask him. You know, it's like, what was your legal advice? And and when he says, well, that's client um, um, solicitor privilege, privilege we're never, mm-hmm. we're never going to know, you know, really what was his legal basis for giving the advice that he did saying that this, that this did in fact meet the threshold. Lydia Miljan, thank you so much for your time. Have a great weekend.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The modern day mascot is a pretty cool phenomenon if you think about it in this time of virtual reality, the world at your fingertips through your phone or other devices. It's a throwback to to kind of a simpler era, you know, where being in the park, being at the rink was really where all the fun was. And one of the coolest parts about going to a big league game or even a minor league game or a college game is the atmosphere and the mascot often adds to that, right? Now, some people love them. Some people don't like them. Some mascots are awesome. Some aren't quite as great. I grew up in Montreal, so UP was a big deal at Expos games. Now, keep in mind, the Olympic Stadium, where the Expos played, was an awful place. It was like it was like the most cavernous, unpleasant place to watch a game. But the team was pretty good, and the mascot revved things up. So it, it kind of added to the warmth of the whole place to have this orange. I, I, I don't even know what UP is. A bear, maybe? I don't know. Um, orange thing running around, making noise. And he was pretty funny, too. And, you know, baseball is kind of long. So there's a lot of downtime in baseball. And he used to rev things up a bit. Not always. It could be annoying. But most of the time, it was pretty good. It was so good that he actually got tossed from a baseball game back in 1989. Uh, Dodgers legendary manager Tommy Lasorda was upset about UP making noise on top of their dugout and had him throw it out. Here's what it sounded like. Time is called. They want UP off the Dodger dugout. He's bugging the Dodger players, and Tom Lasorda is out. And third base umpire Bob Davidson is throwing UP out of the ball game. He wants him off the Dodger dugout. Tommy Lasorda has put up a complaint. This will draw the ire of the fans. And they want Buck Rogers out to get Yuppie out of there. Buck is sitting down. Here comes Davidson running over, and Buck's going to make Davidson come over and say, what do you want? No, they're calling somebody from security over. They're going to call security and remove him from the ballpark. Well, we've seen it all now, huh? Yuppie's been thrown out of the game, off the Dodgers' (laughs) dugout. Now, at the time, Yuppie used to wear this. In the later innings, he would wear this sort of sleep outfit, including a sleep hat. And he was wearing that when he got... It was the most ridiculous thing. I think I was watching the game live when it happened way back in 1989. So there's a lasting memory for you. Of course, as a kid, you watched everyone else's uh, mascots too. So, you know, the Philly Fanatic was a big deal. The Brewers have their racing sausages. Mr. Met, uh, then later the Raptor. Gritty of the Flyers has made a whole lot of noise of late. He was uh, quite famous when he showed up. Um, New York Bet just did a survey of NHL mascots only and found that 78% of hockey fans like mascots in general, 78% like their own team's mascot, and the majority of fans, like 66%, say mascots add to the overall experience of an NHL game, especially liking how mascots interact with fans, especially kids, during the game. The fan favorite uh, is Al the Octopus in Detroit, who I don't think actually exists, but I'll have to look into that. Uh, Mick E. Moose in Winnipeg and the Wild Wing in Anaheim, which I couldn't pick out of a lineup. I've never seen the Wild Wing in Anaheim. The bottom three were the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets Stinger, Ottawa's Sparta Cat, and Calgary's Harvey the Hound. Something about the Flames not liking their mascot. Harvey the Hound finished at the bottom. So what makes for a good mascot. What is the magic behind that mask? Jeremy Bartlett is a mascot guru, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for your time on this Friday night. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So tell me about your earliest memories of being a mascot, because I remember being at the game, too. You know, you go to your first ball game, you're like, one day I hope to play professional baseball, and you look over and think, hey, being a mascot looks like it could be kind of fun, too, actually. 
Well, you know, my first time being a mascot was for my high school, and uh, they considered that varsity cheerleading. And I've played right. sports my entire life. Um, and so um, I was, I'll tell you this, I was really good at sitting on the bench and not starting. And yeah, so I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I was, but I wanted a Letterman jacket. I wanted to, to be on varsity. And uh, you got a Letterman jacket for being wow. the, the, the mascot. And so I was like, ooh, there's my way to get that jacket. Um, and so my senior year, I tried out to, to be the mascot um, just to get the jacket. Um, and a little did I know that was going to change my entire life because the, the mascot bug bit me, um, and I, I, I can't seem to stop it. Um, and I've yeah. been doing this for 17-plus years now. It's amazing because you, you kept it up at college, right? You, go, you went to Texas State uh, in yes, San Marcos, sir. and you kept it up. You kept it up. You kept, I know, kept, uh, only kept it up. You got great at it. <laughs> I, I was pretty good. Um, there was people in high school saying, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to UP being ejected, I only was ejected from one high school game. Um, <laughs> and so I thought it was uh, rare. That was, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was. Um, this was kind of a, a big stunt that wasn't really, you know, allowed to, to do. Um, and they had told me, hey, you can't be doing stuff like that. You're not a professional. And um, the, the, the closest professional mascot to us at that time uh, was the San Antonio Spurs mascot, the Coyote. Um, and they were like, hey, you can't do stuff like that. You're not the Coyote. And then wow. two weeks after I got ejected from my game, the Spurs Coyote got ejected from his very first NBA game because it was one of those uh, instances where the fans were really into the game and bad calls were being made by the refs. And the, the Coyote was uh, helping rile the fans up, and the refs uh, was like, we need, the, we need that dog, wolf-looking rabbit out of here. Um, and yeah, so after that, it was just, they're like, Hey, you, you've got something. And so I went on to Texas state, won a national championship as a mascot because there is competitions for mascots in college. Um, and then as I was in college, in between high school and college, I trained with the Spurs, uh, mascots. Um, they had the hockey team, uh, WNBA team and the NBA team. Um, and after winning that national championship, uh, championship in college, the Spurs were like, hey, you're really good at this. Uh, and we ha- just happened to have an opening. Are you interested? And so because I was like, this is crazy. Uh, yeah, I I want to do this. I want to get actually paid to do this. Um, and from then just fell in love and started my own company 11 years ago to where I, I do mascot stuff uh, as a consultant for other professional teams, as well as I train mascots uh, from high school, college, semi-pro, and professional-level mascots. Yeah, I mean, I was noticing at one point you worked as a mascot assistant, uh, really helping out a whole range of people working as mascots as well. Was that in San Antonio? Was that was that at that time? That, that was in San Antonio, as well as I'm yeah. still uh, helping the uh, the Houston Texans mascot right now uh, in the yeah. NFL. Um, they could use it. I, I they work, could use uh, it. game days um, <laughs> yeah. with them um, to where I, I help develop their skits uh, for that, that performer, um, help bring in a lot of current pop culture references because mascotting is constantly evolving and you got to stay up with the times and know uh, the dance moves and the right. all the flings and all just you know it's just mascotting you is, you're basically a stand-up comedian that doesn't talk uh right that you just have to come up with new jokes and new bits um 
and jokes that we used to do back in the, the early days, you can't really do that these days uh, yeah, you, because it's, it's old and boring and not appropriate. So, so it's not all improv, right? Like it's not all – it, someone just doesn't put on, the, put on the mascot outfit and then run out there and just do whatever they want. It's actually planned and you've you got a whole thing set up and a way to keep the crowd going and times when you have to be there and times when you have to do your thing. I would say it's 60% planned and 40% wing it uh, because right. you, you control the things you can control. But if you've got, you got a routine and you're relying on, you know, hired actors or, you know, certain moments of the game and it just goes wrong, you have to just, like, make, a, make an adjustment and just go with it because you can't – there's only so much you can, can control uh, when it comes to planning – uh, a performance or a skit or a routine um, that things can just go awry just with anything else, like any type of Broadway play that you can memorize your lines, you can block it, you can do all that, but sometimes there's a fly on stage and everybody sees it and you just got to, or someone forgets the line or completely fumbles over the words that you just have to, to go with the flow um, and, and hope that no one notices. Uh, and most of the time when it comes to mascot, it, something goes wrong the only people that's going to know is the mascot and the people that actually know what was supposed to happen right there is that benefit isn't there what's it like to i mean is it nerve-wracking to to get do you do you, do you pump yourself up to go out is, is it nerve-wracking to i mean you're wearing a costume which helps i suppose but um but it's still you like I, under there you're still having to perform and you're looking for reaction and how stressful is it to to sort of get out there and 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 do your thing when it comes to like actual skits and performances, it's so nerve wracking as well as well as like dance performances because you've got one shot. This is a live game. This is a live moment, and you only have about a minute fifteen to minute thirty tops to do that routine. And you, you, you. There's no replay. There's no do over. There's like, hey, sorry, I messed up. Like you, you have to be perfect in that moment. When it comes to just like the 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 regular mingling in the crowd, like that's the fun part. Uh, but it's all fun parts. But being able to just have the freedom of like, hey, I'm just here to hang out, and have fun, and engage these fans. Like that that's probably the least stressful. Um, and so when it comes to like a game experience, um, there there's two ways you can look at it. If the team is good, you get to ride the coattails. If right. the team is bad, everybody's watching you, and everybody's like, okay, our team sucks, but, like, at least the mascot's good, and the mascot's entertaining. Like, maybe we should put the mascot in. Maybe the mascot could play better than the, some of these players. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of, like, give and take that, like I said, like, it's if the team's great, it's everybody likes you. If the team's terrible, they're like, hey, you need to do something. You need to talk to the players, activate them, like, Get, get us going. Um, and so there's a lot of weight um, being the mascot. Jeremy, just, just for mascotting in general, what are some of the real challenges? Is, is it the costume? I mean, sometimes you you can't tell whether uh, just how much of a hindrance the actual costume is when mascots wear them. Absolutely. The costume is, is a big part of the hindrance, uh, the, the limited uh, dexterity of uh, vision. And, you know, depending on what kind of feet the costume has, if they're big, giant floppy feet, uh, what kind of the hands are, if you've got appendages, horns, antlers. Um, I would say the, the biggest thing is the vision uh, right. because not every mascot looks out of the same holes. Uh, sometimes right. it's the mouth, sometimes it's the eyes, um, and depending on where the eyes are on the head, they could be big eyes, they could be small eyes. 
um, as well as uh, it's, or, or looking through a neck. Um, there's some mascots out there where you look through the neck. Um, and so you pretty much lose peripherals uh, whenever you're in the suit. You're limited to be able to where you can hardly hear stuff um, because, you know, you're wearing the giant foam padded, uh, depending on what type of material the, the costume is made. It could be hard plaster. It could be rubber. It could be foam. Um, if it's a, where a hockey head on the inside that, you know, keeps the head on so it doesn't fall off or you've got cushions smash up against your face. Um, so wow. that's a lot of limitations there. Um, I know for me, when I was a, an AHL hockey mascot, um, I had no peripherals. And my the, I was a bull uh, for the San Antonio Rampage, and the nose was silver. And so whenever the spotlights hit me, the, the silver turned into a mirror and reflected into my face to where I was completely blind. So it was... Uh, it was that limitation there to where, like, I'm on the ice shooting out T-shirts, but as soon as they hit me with the spots, I'm like, I, <laughs> my assistants tell me how far I am away from the wall uh, as I'm <laughs> shooting T-shirts on the gun to where, like, I'm God. completely blind. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of hindrances just in the costume. Um, but other than the costume, just team support because uh, yeah. not every team gives the, the performers the freedom uh, to, to do stuff to, to right. where some performers are just very limited. Uh, right. what they're allowed to do. So a little rapid fire here. What is the one thing about mascotting that nobody knows? Um, we're all a little weird uh, and different. If you think it takes a you know a special person, um, it takes a stupid person that wants to wear a, a fur costume as a job, uh, especially when, you know, these performers uh, were performing in the middle of the summer in a, a, a fur coat, essentially, um, it takes an idiot to want to do that, but we're professional idiots. Um, so yeah, <laughs> but, I would say that's what it takes. Absolute best part of the gig. Best part of the gigs. Um, the kids and the connection with the fans, man, uh, yeah. there, there's nothing like it because you are the bridge between the players on the field or on the ice to the fans. Uh, players come and go all the time, but mascots, uh, for the most part, stay there forever. So you, you are the one that ca- uh, carries the torch. Uh, uh, and waves the flag uh, of the uh, entire team uh, that the, you know the community gets behind. Why is it that so many mascots are difficult to identify as to exactly what they are? Uh, I would say fabrication of the costume because you know there's there's not a machine that makes it. These are all made by hand. Um, really? So, like uh, if of they course, don't, of uh, if if the the, the fabrication company doesn't do a good job about making the character then uh it, it's it's not going to go over I, I know with Bowie uh for for the uh, the kraken everyone's right. like oh i hope it's going to be a kraken but whenever they debuted everybody's like what the heck is that uh yeah. same thing with gritty they're like what yeah. is a gritty uh it's yeah. just this you know thing of nightmares uh, I saw but, I saw you know. Bowie actually last week. I was in Seattle and <laughs> saw a hockey game and saw Bowie. The, the, you know the ki- the thing is the kids love him and it was an afternoon game yeah. and he, and he actually made the whole experience better. I mean it was a decent game, but he did. The kids loved it. And what else do you want, right? Absolutely. Like I said, like they that's that's the players are not available to go to hospitals all the time. They are not late, available to go to schools, and so uh, the mascot that's that's the closest thing they're going to get to. Uh, being able to, to high-five or hug a player is, is through the mascot. Because, you know, they're wearing the same jersey. He's got his own number. Uh, so, he's always going to be there. So in your in your experience and professional opinion, 
who's what's the best out there? Who's the who's the best of the best when it comes to mascots? You want to talk about by league or just top top dog? All, all, top all... top to a few of the top dogs, the ones you think that's a good mascot. Okay, top dog. I will have to give it to Orbit of the Houston Astros. Not only really? is he a World Series champion right now, but yep. his creativity, his school programs, the revenue he generates for the team, the the uniqueness of what he does to activate the fans is. Uh, I'm constantly blown away and impressed because he doesn't right. just repeat the same stuff. Um, I would say Rocky for the Denver Nuggets, uh, right. NBA, same thing with Spurs Coyote. Like uh, Rocky, the Clutch the Bear for the Rockets, uh, Spurs Coyote. Um, those would be like the top three NBA guys. Um, when it comes to the NHL, I don't want to give Gritty a bigger head than he already has, but that dude um, – He's killing it right now, and he's he's got the support from the team, um, and that's huge for any team with a mascot. That if you if you give them that support, you can blow the doors off. Um, and for as far as Harvey the Hound, I can't remember the last time anybody said, "Hey, remember that funny thing Harvey the Hound did?" Um, I would say back in the old days, um, I heard stories about how Harvey the Hound used to be good. Um, right that he was crazy uh, as far as, like, balancing on uh, the the glass and, and walking sure. across the glass back in the old days. Um, the original guy, he's actually started his own company that makes mascots. Um, so I, I know he, he used <laughs> to be good, but um, Bailey used to be the king of the NHL. Uh, yeah. But I don't want to tell you to go Google what happened to Bailey, but he got caught up in controversy and Bailey is now no longer a top dog. So gritty is it. Uh, Jeremy Bartlett, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. We'll, I have a whole, I will be watching mascots this weekend with a whole new appreciation. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You take care. So be honest. Did you do any black Friday shopping today? I didn't set foot in a store. I was at work for most of the day. Things started early today because the prime minister was testifying at that inquiry. So he kind of prevented my black fry. Usually I go have a look. Not that there's a lot of shopping to be done in Victoria, but usually I go have a look. I didn't this year, but apparently people were back in stores. That was what was the most interesting thing. 90% of people in some surveys said that they were planning on heading back to bricks and, you know, a brick and mortar store on Black Friday. And I remember watching the videos because we would always show them on TV, the footage of people storming into some, you know, electronic store in the States, trampling each other for a TV and thinking, wow, I really wouldn't want to have to do that. Um, but I looked around online. You know, obviously you get a lot of ads today telling you about how great these deals are. Anybody you've ever looked at even remotely for a second online, their ads were popping up on social media today, on my social media feeds saying, buy me, you know, all the things you've ever looked at come out of the woodwork of advertising about just how much cheaper they are today. Uh, U.S. National Retail Federation Senior Director Catherine Cullen says, while the five-day Black Friday weekend no longer really is the start of the holiday shopping season, it's still a big deal. It is still one of the most popular shopping events, and we're expecting millions of consumers to turn out looking for great deals and promotions, as well as spending time with friends and family while shopping over those five days. So I often ask myself, how is it that we all get trapped in these manias of sales day? I mean, Boxing Day, you know, it was kind of, I always did Boxing Day sales at the record store, lined up for hours in the cold to buy, you know, one thing at 50% off. It seemed like a bit of a waste of time, but part of it was just the joy of doing it, right? 
part of the experience was just going out. It reminded me of, of what, you know, sort of the worst, what is the worst thing you've ever bought on, on a big sales day? I think I bought a pair of uh, skinny jeans many years ago that were uh, online that just, yeah, should not have ever been seen in public. It was a terrible idea. But that's what happens sometimes on sales day, right? You can let me know what the worst thing you ever bought is or maybe the best deal you've ever got. That's a good one too. 877-399-9898 is our text line. 877-399-9898. We won't try to sell you anything. Um, But why is it that our brain becomes so fully engaged with these sales? Why is it that we could be hardwired? And this is a survival instinct thing to enjoy a good bargain and the hunt for a good bargain. So we went to find out. Um, and helping us out with this is Christophe Morin. He's the CEO of Sales Brain. He's the author of The Persuasion Code and The Serenity Code. He's someone who knows a whole lot about how the brain reacts to marketing. And he joins us now from Kona in Hawaii. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, yeah. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So it's interesting because I've been noticing this specifically since the advent of social media. I tend to get pretty stressed around Black Friday because I'm we're being bombarded with ads and suggestions and it feels like the brain is reacting to it. What's going on inside? Well, what's going on is an attempt by our brain to filter and frankly barrage the flood of these messages. Uh, we, you may not realize, but we, we get an average of 30,000 uh, ads per day and our brain has just not evolved to process them all. 30,000. That's, that's, yes. that's, that's an incredible amount. And so it, it, it turns out that uh, we don't have one brain, by the way. We really have two functional systems, one called the primal brain, which is also well known as the survival-centric uh, brain. And that is really the type of brain that ultimately becomes the, the, the guardian of our uh, sanity. And, and therefore, at the same time, it's also a very emotional and very impulsive brain, whereas the rational brain, which is more evolved, is the type of activity where we can think, we can deliberate. And sadly, in Black Friday, uh, all attempts are made to shut down our rational brain and only stimulate and activate the primal one. Yeah, I imagine on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, the whole point is to get us to make impulse buys, right? So it's a, it's a bit of an unfair game sometimes. It is. And, and it's true that uh, the research on advertising that I've done over the 20, 20 years of of merging neuroscience and advertising does show how, how frankly, uh, problematic many of those messages are, not so much to uh, adults, because you can expect that the maturation of our brain has enabled us to protect ourselves to some extent, but uh, young people are not as protected as we are. So if it's playing on our on our sort of uh, primal brain, our fight or flight, so I mean, that's probably too simplistic, but uh, what is it that we're... What is it that we're experiencing? Because it feels like the biggest one is that sense of missing out, that sense of loss. And if you don't take advantage of it, you're going to be without. But at the same time, I gather it's also trying to convince us to take to make that bet uh, versus sort of expending something and getting something back for it. That's right. Well, going back to the primal brain, the primal brain doesn't uh, know uh, time is uh, exists to speak of. It's a now brain. And therefore, 
when you feel that there is an, an unusual, fairly aggressive offer made to you, the primal brain is all excited. Uh, we're releasing the kind of neurotransmitters and hormones that ultimately make us approach those very uh, uh, seducive uh, offers. And so we're talking about dopamine, of course, which is known as the reward transmitter. It's it's the sugar of our motivation, but it's also the source of many of our addictions. We're talking about oxytocin, where we feel that that all of a sudden we're, we're bathing in gifts and opportunities like we've never seen before. And so we're very vulnerable uh, because all our chemistry is uh, baked and cooked in such a way that we have very little uh, in, inhibition in order to, to protect ourselves from all those good, uh, good deals, so to speak. Right. And I guess what we're, one of the things that you've explained is that the deals allow us or give our primal brain or give our rational brain permission to let our primal brain take over in some senses because we're thinking, ah, oh, it's cheaper than it, than it used to be. So therefore, I can make an impulse buy. I won't regret it. I won't necessarily regret it later. Well, that's uh, it's even it's even harder than than that for the the rational brain to take any kind of action because right. the dominance of these transmitters is so strong that we are literally hijacked, if you will, uh, during those few days with the sensation that it's all going to go away until we act now. And the rational brain, which is where we do have the ability to travel in time, is is put aside uh, unless you have the, the will and the, the force, the mental force to resist it. It's very, very difficult to activate our rational brain. It's costly. Uh, it takes a lot of energy, glucose and oxygen. And the primal is much more efficient, which makes it more lethal in a way. Yeah, and and um, yeah, I, mean, I think I think we've been all we've all been ex- experiencing it the last week or so because it feels like it starts earlier every year uh, as well. Tell me a bit about the difference between online experience and personal because it used to be Black Friday that sort of the image of Black Friday was people trampling over each other for TVs at Walmart or at uh, you know at at a, at a Best Buy. That was the image we had. It feels like now we do a lot of this. Um, battling with our primal brain all by ourselves in front of our phones. How much of a difference does that make? It is, in fact, a a growing area of research. Uh, Obviously, we've learned to adapt to the fact that we can't uh, and don't need to shop, you know, physically for most of what we need. Uh, And so there are lots of opportunity online to create a storytelling that is very visual and very emotional, which may not exist at all in the context of, you know, shopping a a, a big store, uh, which, you know, is not exactly that pleasant. So we control more elements, including the speed and and how much we want to engage online. We can also do it at any time of the day or night. And therefore, we, we can't escape in a way. We can't have excuses uh, for for not attending to those offers. It's really provided immense opportunities for many of us to be manipulated by offers, frankly. Yeah, because your primal brain is always reminding you that that sale is on. That thing that you that you decided not to buy six hours ago, you could still buy it, but not for long. That's right. There, there's no way the rational can throw in um, hurdles or problems of reaching a particular store at a particular time. None of those barriers no, you know, no longer exist. Now that we know just how susceptible our brains are, or the primal brain is, 
to this sort of barrage of advertising that we get around this time of year, how susceptible we are to the idea that we can get a good deal on something and that that good deal is fleeting. So it makes us want to act, right? Uh, how do you trade your brain to cool down? It's um, a, a big raging area of research right now, not just uh, because we need to protect ourselves from overpurchasing, but also because many of our addictions, uh, whether it's uh, food or, or substance, are, are really anchored in the same sort of um, neurobiological mechanisms, this, this inability that we have to, to put white space between the craving and the behavior. So the, the best uh, approach that I have seen, and, and certainly those that I describe also in the Serenity Code to lower stress and anxiety, is to engage more at the rational level to do what's called cognitive reappraisal or cognitive reassessment, which is simply to give yourself the time, the pause in your craving to really create the pros and cons of that deal. Uh, what is so special about it? Uh, how unique is it? Do you need it? Because a lot of those purchases, some people argue, especially psychologists, are really trying to fill gaps that exist in your soul and therefore just the uh, the craving for purchasing in a way can hide more uh, deep problems emotionally and psychologically so reactivating the 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 rational pausing as much creating more time between the the urge to act and the decision to do so because i guess ultimately uh, your primal brain doesn't always make good decisions for you right so you may not regret uh, not acting on impulse if you just give it give your your brain a chance to think about it a little more clearly. It's very true. Uh, we depend on the primal brain to alert us to the possibility that the piece of wood that you briefly noticed as you were hiking is potentially a snake, and it could uh, it could be extremely uh, dangerous. So right. we have this dependence, but we don't need it to push us to act on purchasing decisions of products or services that are not as urgent as the signal in our brain is suggesting. I mean, the amygdala is often cited as a problem for the Black Friday success to the extent that the amygdala is a tiny little brain structure inside of the primal brain that is the megaphone of an emotional response. And so we have the software in our primal brain to amplify those opportunities that are deemed to be passing and therefore could signal, you know, a sh shorter lifespan. I mean, we've needed it for food, for protecting ourselves from predators, but we uh, haven't yet quite figured out how to protect ourselves from, um, you know, Black Friday deals. Yeah, we don't need it for a, for a sweater, right? That's the... Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the, uh, um, but you've also pointed out, because you you both looked at the idea of persuasion, but also the idea of serenity and anxiety, that it, it can be an anxious time too, isn't it? This time of year when all these sales are on and Christmas is coming and you have to buy, it, it, it can become quite stressful. Uh, I find Black Friday and Cyber Monday relatively stressful because it's easy to ignore, but you get that fear of missing out, which is, you you, you don't want to admit it, but it's what happens, right? You think, oh, what, what about that pair of sunglasses I don't need? You know, I really should look to see if they're on an even bigger sale now, but you really shouldn't. Yeah, you've mentioned the fear of regret a number of times. That it is a very primal fear. And in fact, there is a tiny little brain area in the uh, primal brain called the insula 
that that will light up each time we we experience this issue. And and I talk a lot to many of my clients, for instance, when they sell all kinds of services, particularly large items, to in fact uh, have a process after the purchase to reassure people that either they can return the items if they feel regret or that they have indeed made a good decision. So we, we, we really can't assume that people have this ability to manage those emotional ups and downs, which, as you just said, will create stress, ultimately uh, moving into some possible anxiety, which sends uh, the signal that you've done something wrong. You can't, you know, stop thinking about it. Rumination kicks in. And before you know it, you go see a psychologist to ease, you know, the, the stress on your nervous system. So it's really, once again, important to step back and recognize whether or not we need those deals before we let go and and allow the hijacking of the primal brain. How about for you? Do you ever uh, <laughs> do you ever buy anything on, <laughs> on, on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, or do you try to avoid it? You know, uh, living on an island makes me quite vulnerable to many yes. of those deals, especially since uh, Hawaii is often the the kind of state where vendors are saying we're not shipping there, and yes. so I, I have the double problem of of not having all the items that I need, and now they're on sale, so it's it's quite <laughs> difficult. I need to just shut down my internet to protect myself, really. Yeah, your primal brain is on <laughs> overdrive, I'm sure. Uh, Christophe Moray, thank you so much for your time and your insight on this tonight. You're very welcome. You know, I spent a lot, a lot of time covering politics over the years, so I'm always really interested in how politicians communicate. And ever since he announced his, his bid to become the leader of the Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev has been done a really good job, especially with his social media videos. They're very well done. Some of them are better than others. Uh, but he puts together these little vignettes. They're often well shot. They're well told. Um, he's compelling. They have a narrative. They have a story arc. They're good. They're they're interesting to watch. You don't have to like his politics. You don't have to like him. You don't have to like his party, or you can. Um, but just purely as political communication, I think they're really well done. So a new one came out last week, and I recognized the back, backdrop. It was called something like "Everything is broken." Now that's a pretty common refrain from an opposition leader, right? It's it seems a bit a bit ludicrous. Obviously, it's not it's simplistic. Not everything is broken. Not every moment of everyone's lives in Canada is full of, filled with despair and fear. Um, but he makes an interesting point. The backdrop is Vancouver. Uh, he's on the edge of the water. There's a tent city behind him and the Vancouver skyline beyond that. And it's really about, and it's an effective video. It's it's well shot. It's, it's, there's music, you know, it's well told. But you start listening to the message and you, you think, well, what's, the, what's this one about? Because often they're about freedom and so on. This one is about the failures, as he sees it, of drug policy, right? Um, the opioid crisis we know has been, in, I mean, in BC, it's been a, it was declared a public health emergency six years ago now. Thousands of people have died in BC alone, let alone elsewhere, since the opioid crisis began. And of course, Governments everywhere have been struggling to figure out how to contend with it because really the problem is an illicit supply of poisonous drugs. Fentanyl, carfentanyl are lethal and they're hard to stop. They come into our country. They're sold by unscrupulous dealers to people who need them and use them. Um, and a lot of people die alone using these drugs. It's, it's a curse and it's, it needs to be stopped. How do you stop it? Well, the theme of this five-minute video that Pierre Polyev put out over last weekend uh, was really about targeting 
Vancouver's policies around safe supply or providing drugs that are not contaminated with toxic opioids to those fighting addiction. Here's how he puts it. We need to stop using tax dollars to fund dangerous drugs under the so-called and ironically named idea of safe supply. There is no safe supply of these drugs. They are deadly, they are lethal, and they are relentlessly addictive. Giving people more of these drugs will not free them from their addiction. It will only lead to their ultimate death, as we have seen over the last several years that it has been tried here in Vancouver. So is that right? Is he right? A lot of people jumped up and said, wait a second, what's that based on? Safe supply isn't the problem here. Alberta may have had a, a bit of a good run recently with uh, with preventing with fewer overdose deaths, but they use safe supply. Is safe supply the problem here? Well, one person who used to be a top advisor on justice issues for uh, wh- who was then Pierre Polyev's boss, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, doesn't buy it at all. He calls it five minutes of rehashing old and failed war on drugs tropes that are uh, costly and deadly. Joining me now is Benjamin Perrin, again, a former advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He's now a professor at the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, and he's also author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Ben. Thank you for having me. Uh, As someone so close to this matter, uh, we continue to see high death rates. It feels like we're not making progress. Uh, At least it's hard to see. Are we, do you think? Well, we continue to see massive numbers of people across uh, Canada dying of opioid-related deaths. We know that the cause of this from the coroners who unfortunately have to do the autopsies and toxicology reports of people who die, we know what's causing it. It's it's caused by illicit fentanyl-contaminating street drugs. Here in BC, the coroner service found there was no evidence of people dying from accessing a safer supply. To the contrary, uh, research continues to show that providing people with drugs of known contents and potency, not just these street drugs mixed in kitchen blenders, that that reduces their overdose risk. Is there been progress made? Well, in the, in the sense of how many lives we know have been saved by people having access to overdose prevention sites, it has saved countless lives. But we are still in the thick of the opioid crisis. We're still not doing what we need to do which is to decriminalize people who use drugs, provide them with safe places to use a safer supply and uh, access to evidence-based treatment and recovery. We need to do all of those things in addition to, of course, dealing with the underlying uh, causes of this. When you look at sort of, um, I wouldn't call it public frustration, but through the pandemic, it's been a tough time, right? Uh, For everybody, I mean, it's been a horrific time for people dying alone of drug overdoses. It's been a horrific Mm. time for their families. We've spoken to them on the show, you know, who talk about empathy for those who are struggling with addiction, but also with a rise in sort of random attacks and so on. You're seeing, we've been in this crisis for a long time and nerves get frayed on all sides, right? I guess that's why I was asking about about progress, because it feels like people want to see something change. And yet it feels like we're, it's sort of a Sisyphean task. It's been, it's, it's a hard mountain to climb this one. Well, the bottom line is, with respect to substance use and mental health issues, is that we have chronically underfunded and not supported them. And, and we're, we're, we're actually going to make things a lot worse here in Canada now as we think that pol- the answer is more police. Right. And in, in Vancouver, Ottawa, other cities across the country, in the province of BC now, we're seeing uh, massive increases in police budgets. More handcuffs is not going to help. Uh, bottom line is, you know, someone does a 
commits an act of violence, if they're a threat to others, they obviously need to be separated from society for a time. The problem is the way that we do that is to actually make things worse. You know, people don't get better in prison and jail and custody. They tend to get a lot worse. Yeah. What's really interesting about your background, of course, is that you came from, I mean, as an advisor to Prime Minister Harper within the Conservative government, you have a really good grasp of of what the mindset is around some of these issues from from another point of view, because I think sometimes we often hear from those who advocate for for safe supply and advocate for uh, for supervised uh, injection and so on. When you look at Pierre Polyev's video, and we talk, and this is yeah. sort of where we started here about everything is broken. You know, safe supply is the problem. Woke, sort of quote unquote woke uh, policies <laughs> right. are the issue. Uh, you know that world. Where's that coming from? Do you think? Well, it's very simple. He's doing it to get votes. He knows that people are are tempted by uh, fear and quick fixes, and it's it sounds like a quick fix. Just you know, start locking people up. You know, there's bottom line is there's no evidence to support it. Pierre Polyev in his video says that we know what works, and he says we can stop these drugs at the border. I mean, anyone who knows anything about this issue was not laughing, but just shocked that he said that. He knows that's not true. The Canada Border Services Agency and uh, investigators who I interviewed for my research told me that they find packages as small as greeting cards. Like, you know, mentioning the Christmas cards people are going to get in a you know, few, right. few weeks here. That's where the fentanyl is. It's, it's a very potent powder. There's over, over 1.9 million packages enter the Vancouver International Airport from China every month. So Pierre Polyev wants to hire some more people to go looking for needles in the haystack and tells us that's the way out. Forget it. And if we want to talk about people living in tents in cities like, uh, like Vancouver and Victoria and Toronto and really throughout Canada... The, the current stats this week in Vancouver, it costs $2,500, $2,500 on average to rent a one-bedroom apartment. That is why we have tent cities. It's because we have people who have been left behind by society. Typically, there's a combination of things like mental health disorders. There can be substance use, there isn't always. And people who have been marginalized you know, you think about uh, folks who experienced massive levels of childhood trauma or through the uh, foster care child welfare system. It's tough. And, and there's families, too. You know, it's not we don't need to be afraid of homeless people. Uh, there's this fear and stigma against the poor, which it's heartbreaking. You know, whenever I've gone and, and spoken with folks living out of tents and vans and trailers, everyone has been thoughtful, considered polite you know, dropping off a bit of food for folks. That's what we should be doing, not using them as political backdrops like Pierre Polyev is doing to to demonize them. Tell me about the safe supply issue, because that was, um, you know, taxpayer-funded safe supply. My understanding, of course, was that um, safe supply was simply that you can't you can't make addicts stop on the on the dime. So you can't put them into recovery but it, without without trying to keep them alive. And and that's what right. safe supply does. I mean safe supply right. and and it's and it's used everywhere. Yeah, safe supply actually has decades of experience uh throughout uh European countries. It's a uh, it's it's actually medically recommended for people who have made multiple attempts at recovery and it hasn't worked. The average person by the way who got on the first safe supply trials in Vancouver over 15 years ago, had uh, 15 years of substance use disorder experience, so long-term substance use people, 11 attempts at recovery. And this was before the opioid crisis. They probably wouldn't even live to that point uh, in the current context. The safe supply is really quite simple if you think about it. 
if we had any other product in our society that was contaminated, it was meat or water, and it was killing thousands of people a year, we would say, get that off the shelves, right? We're going to replace that. And as you pointed out, look, the bottom line is an addiction is, is someone's going to keep using, even if they want to stop. And we need to keep people alive. So Pierre Polyev's answer to that is to give the drug supply in Canada, which hundreds of thousands of Canadians are using, he's going to give that over to organized crime. That's what his plan is. It's to let organized crime do this. And he talks tough talk about this stuff. But unfortunately, what I found as I looked into the war on drugs and the evidence is we actually, in large part, it, it's to blame is the war on drugs. The more you crack down on a substance, the more potent it gets, right? Think of alcohol prohibition. You know, right. people learn pretty quick, you know, don't smuggle beer, smuggle moonshine. It's higher potency, it's less bulk. Well, that's how we end up with fentanyl and carfentanyl. They're synthetic drugs that are very potent, much harder to find than things like like heroin. And so, so you know, look, we've we've tried the war on drugs for over 40 years, and I grew up you know, hearing about it and seeing it in the Conservative Party. And enough is enough. Criminalizing people who have an addiction is wrong, it's cruel, and promising that you can fix things by throwing more money at policing you're going to waste a lot of money and more people are going to die. Benjamin Parrott is with us this half hour. He's a professor at the Allard School of Law at UBC. He's author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's, and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. In this video, and there's been a lot of talk about Alberta's approach to the whole opioid crisis and how it's seen a significant drop in overdose deaths of late. My understanding, though, is that they're using safe supply in Alberta. Yeah, Alberta has a combination of harm reduction programs because they're life-saving medical interventions, right? They should not be subject to political whims like they are. So, you know, supervised conception sites or overdose prevention sites, those are those are places literally if someone is is using their own drugs and they fall flat on the floor because of and stop breathing because of an overdose, again, because it's organized crime that's giving them the drugs. That's what the drug prohibition says to do. There's someone there to revive them. That's that's all these places are. And they're pro- they've been proven to have saved thousands upon thousands of lives. And yeah, they exist there. If you were to say to a conservative audience, for instance, who might be really receptive to what Pierre Polyev has to say on this, what would you tell them? Hey, I was there too. I was at the front of the band. I was Prime Minister Harper's criminal justice advisor. Drugs are bad. We should criminalize them. Let's crack down on, uh, on the supply. Th- those were my views until I actually went and did the, did the research. I and it wasn't just reading studies. It was meeting with with people. It was meeting not only with the, the border guards and the police and the judges who told me this is a waste of time. It broke my heart to hear the stories of people who whose loved ones had died from it from addiction. And they wanted to they, they want them to have a second chance. When I talked to Mom Stop the Harm, which is one of the leading mm-hmm. advocacy groups for parents and family members of those who've died, they strongly support safe places for their loved ones to use and safer supply. You know, the people in my research who I talk to, and I'm in particularly talking about people who have been sentenced since to, sent to prison now, the average age they started using, this isn't like an outlier, it's typical, is 11, 12, 13. Those are hard drugs, okay? Right. The youngest age that I heard someone develop a substance use disorder was for alcohol. They became an alcoholic at five years old. They did not have the family upbringing I did. Many of these folks are Indigenous people whose parents were horrifically abused in residential schools. They were then shuttled around to multiple foster homes where they were physically and sexually abused. And now they've turned at some point to substances to cope, to medicate the pain. By the way, that's what fentanyl is. It's a pain relief medicine. That's what it was created for in a lab for for cancer patients. And people are dying in massive numbers because of trying to medicate that pain. What Canada needs to do is to treat substance use disorder as a medical condition, supporting people to, to stay alive, 
and to get into treatment and recovery. And we need to address the underlying issues that causes people to, to, to use substances, things like childhood trauma, things like living in this revolving door of being incarcerated, but never getting help. And bottom line is we're spending billions of dollars, countless lives are being destroyed. And we need to approach this by, by two things. One is we need to have compassion for people who have been brought to this place in their lives and follow the evidence around what we know works. And unfortunately, neither of those two things is happening with the federal conservative leaders approach. And I guess we need some patience too, because I think what I sense is that there is a um, there's a frustration with with what's happened that we're not seeing the kind of progress. And, and as you point out, it, it could be the half measures on the other way, but it feels like there will be an audience out there that if this becomes politicized, there will be an audience out there saying, okay, enough is enough. Enough is enough. That's that's what Pierre Polyev is banking on. Frankly, the Conservative Party has gained votes and raised funds before uh, demonizing people who use drugs. It's been doing it for over well over 20 years. It did it with the Insight case, first of all, uh, opposing right. all the evidence. The Supreme Court of Canada had to step in and say, look, there's nothing to back your position up and supervised consumption sites save lives. The case is closed. That's what the court said. That was 20 years ago. There are no simple, simple answers, Ben. I guess that's what it boils down to. There are no simple answers. Benjamin Perrin, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. Thank you.